I love that song because a lot of us think that our faith is dependent upon how strong our faith is. Our faith is not dependent on how strong our faith is. Our faith is dependent on our belief in his faithfulness. That he, you know, I I, I use this so many times with kids, you know, grace is like this, is when you can't hold on, you're just, God still has you. And that's one of the themes that's gonna come out today is he is greater, he's greater, he's greater, he's greater, greater than often what we perceive, our lack of faith. We're so glad you're here today. Uh, If you were here for the first time last week, this is a normal day, okay? This is a little more normal day. And uh, last week is more of a marketplace than it is a service. And uh, today's service, we're, we, uh, during our generosity spots uh, these few weeks, we are highlighting some ministries. And one of my just favorite things that has been done in the history of this church is the disaster relief team that we have. Uh, do we have any DRT here? Raise your hand if you're a DRT. Give it up for DRT. Anybody here that's in the DRT? Love all you guys and gals who do that. Well, anyway, uh, our DRT, disaster relief team, they, they go into areas where there needs to be rebuild and restoration, etc. They've been partnering with a mission organization in Kentucky to work in the western part of the state where tornadoes devastated a few years ago. And then also the eastern part of Kentucky where devastating flooding has had effect. And this week we received an email after our DRT finished work in eastern Kentucky in the flood zone and I want to share it with you. This is from an individual in Eastern Kentucky. I wanted to write and express our gratitude to your DRT. They were amazing and really saved us by working on our main gathering room in Eastern Kentucky. The floor had entirely rotted with the flooding over the years and age. We hired someone recommended to put in the floor, but that contractor did a terrible job. We finally gave up on him doing anything else. The team, your team, spent five days working hard to repair and shore up the floor. They also painted our kitchen and bathrooms and started the flooring by completing the kitchen. They also changed out a shower tub in the house our staff stays in when we come in, and all of this would have taken us months and months to plan, months and months to execute. Your teams have been so critical in both our Eastern Kentucky and Western Kentucky efforts. They are always hardworking, fun to be around. They are also very skilled. And then here's the closing part of the email. When those floors are full of children and adults getting loved on in the name of Christ, I will always remember Southbrook's disaster relief team and their effort. Isn't that cool, friends? I know it. I love what they do. And that doesn't happen without your generosity. That happens because you have chosen to give tithes and offerings. Your generosity to God through the local church is why that happens. The cool thing about that is we don't get the glory. Christ gets the glory through his church. And we thank those of you. If you're interested in... in, Being a part of the DRT, then uh, you can go to our hello at southbrook.org and ask and say, hey, I've got some skills I think that could be used in that, and we would love to have you be a part of that. Today, we're continuing our series on Romans, which we will have been in from 1st of September, and when we get done in June, we'll be done with the whole book of Romans. And today is interesting. I'm going to read a couple sections, and then I'm going to give you some comments on why this begins an interesting stretch into... Easter. Last week we end with Romans chapter 8, 
Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 38. Uh, Let me give it to you. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angel nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can I get an amen from the congregation? I mean, isn't that awesome? Right? That's an awesome thing. And we learned last week that central thing that we've been studying in the month of January, in Christ we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And in that culture, Roman Greco culture, conquerors were people who were utterly self-sufficient. Struggle did not touch them. They were beyond struggle. They had become so self-commanding and self-reliant. They didn't need anybody or anything. And Paul says the word they had for people like that were conquerors in that culture. They were called conquerors because they'd conquered the human spirit. And, And Paul says, I mean, Christ isn't trying to take us from losers to conquerors. No, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We're more than that. We're alive. We're fully alive. Look what read, look what's next. Look what is next in the text. Romans 9.1. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. For theirs is the adoption to sonship. There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Now, you go from Romans 8, 38 and 39, the whole of Romans 8, which is the gem of the New Testament, as we said, you would think Paul would go right from there to Romans 12, 1. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, let us offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, with a spiritual act of worship. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewal. I mean, you would think those famous verses there, that he'd go right from Romans 8, right into what we call Romans 12, but he doesn't. Instead, he goes into three chapters that are very difficult to understand about Israel and us and God. That's right. He goes into three chapters that we're going to look at in the next few weeks that at the end of those three chapters, even Paul says, who can fathom the mind of God? How unsearchable are the riches of his mind? Paul's basically saying there, I don't even understand everything, really, half as well is I know him, because it is so deep. And we're going to look at this, but the question is why? Why is it in here? Why? You know, your first eight chapters of Romans, this is how God makes a person righteous. The last five chapters of Romans, this is what a righteous person full of the grace and righteousness of Christ looks like in the world, in the real world. And in between are these three chapters. Why are they in there? Well, most scholars believe they're in there because of some other interrogative statements that are made in the book of Romans. Paul answers questions that people had. And most likely, this diversion, this interlude is in there because some of the Jewish Christians were saying, Paul, I know, so we're getting it. It is the the promise given to Abraham, and through his seed, many would be blessed, and through his seed, the Messiah came, and and we believe in Jesus, but what about Israel? What happens to Israel? I mean, God said, you are my chosen people. My promises to you are forever. They will never end. You, You have been elected to be my people, and they rejected Christ. What about them? 
What about them? Well, we're going to learn what about them in the next few weeks. We're going to learn what, what, what about Israel? How does it impact us? And what does it say about God? And, um, you know, get your big boy britches on because this is going to be challenging in a culture like ours. And I, I cannot tell you how rich this is when you realize how extensive God's grace is, how powerful God's grace is to each one of us. It, it, can, it can fully redeem the person who has initially rejected him and they, and they come to repentance and they, and they come to find his grace. Now look at this outline, basically. I wanna give you three truths from this section that I'm gonna focus on the third one the most on. The passion of Paul in verse one to three should motivate us, it should change us. The plan of God includes us and the person of God humbles us, okay? Passion of Paul motivates us, plan of God includes us, the person of God humbles us. Let's look at that first one, very first. The passion of Paul, look at this. Paul was not a weak man. He was not a, a man who had not been through very challenging times. He had been through, to this point when he writes this, shipwrecks, beatings, hunger, mockery, slander, arrest, and yet, look at what he says. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I would be cut off if it meant that my own people would come to Christ. That is, an, that is hyperbole to some extent, but it's literal in the sense that Paul has the heart of Christ. He has great anguish because they have rejected what their whole history has pointed toward. All of their history has pointed to this moment. Everything was on the way to the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the whole thing. And you get there and they reject it. And he says, it breaks my heart. Now he is echoing what Jesus said in Matthew 23. He comes into Israel and he stands. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, he comes into Jerusalem and he stands. And you're, there are places where you can just overlook Jerusalem. And where he's standing, you can see almost the whole city. And he stands there, and, he, and, and the scriptures say he, he begins to weep. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stoned the prophets and killed those sent to you, how I long to gather you under, under me like a mother hen gathering her chicks, but you would not have me. You would not have me. And you see this tragic heart of Christ that is just a man of sorrows grieving that his very own people have rejected him. And Paul echoes this same, same anguish in his heart. He knows what it is to enjoy the peace, the righteousness, the gift of Christ. Please understand, this was a guy who was a Jewish terrorist killing Christians for this new sex belief that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah and he was given grace, and he would later write in 1 Timothy 1, he would say, I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, but I was, I was an example of his patience, and his grace was extended to me. And not only to me, but to all who, who are sinners. He said, I'm just the chief of sinner. And he had enjoyed all this, and he said, I would give that up. If it meant my cousin's in Israel would come to Christ. Now, I want to stop here and say this. Constantly, our adversary, very real evil, the person of Satan, the fallen angel, 
is always, listen to me, he's always, always, always trying to make sin less deadly, heaven less desirable, hell less disastrous, and the gospel less urgent. Always. Eh, you know, I gave my life to Jesus because he kind of wallpapered my house. I need a new wallpaper on my house. When, in fact, Christ doesn't come to wallpaper our house. He comes to totally tear it down to the studs and redo it. And, and in a culture where it's okay to believe in Jesus, just don't take it too seriously. Don't be a Jesus freak. Here's Paul saying, my heart beats for what breaks God's heart. Does yours. Somebody once said that you can tell a person's character by what makes them laugh and what makes them cry. And one of the signs that you are coming to Christ, but that Christ is coming into you, is you'll begin to be sorrowful for the same things that Jesus is sorrowful for. Your heart will start to break for what breaks the heart of Christ. And when you, those of you, I know many of you use the questions this week in your groups, make sure you stop and spend time on this. Think, think and pray through, what breaks my heart? What gets me upset? Because if your heart doesn't care for people who are far from Christ, face a Christless eternity, then you really need to wonder if the grace of Christ has become, if it's not just an abstract concept to you, and if it's become a real life-altering truth that has impacted your soul. Because as you grow in him, your heart will be more like what Paul's expressing here than what it used to be. I don't know about you. I loved it when I was young and selfish and didn't care a rip about any other people. Life was easier then. Anybody, anybody agree with that? Life was a lot easier. Now my heart breaks for people. And that's not me. That's him living in me. The passion of Paul is very instructive to all of us. Secondly, the plan of God includes us. And this is really, really important to understand. Many Christians don't understand this, is we're not first. Israel was first. We were drafted, and then in a, in a phrase that we'll see in Romans chapter 11, we were the ones who were grafted in, not Israel. We were, Israel was the trunk, the, the tree of Judah, and we were grafted into that by his grace. And so look at this, look at this, uh, this list that Paul goes through and everything. We get it in Christ. He says theirs is the adoption of sons. Exodus 4.22, where God calls Israel his son. And that's in reference to, in that culture, the firstborn son had the full rights to the estate. They were the heir. And we're all, men or women, we're sons of God. We are, we are heirs in Christ. He has given us the riches of his estate. Theirs is the divine glory. This refers to the visible glory cloud, the Shekinah, the manifestation of his presence that dwelt in their midst in the with the tabernacle and the temple. And now, and now in Christ, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And what does it say in John's gospel? We beheld his glory. We have the Shekinah now. It's in the person of Christ. Theirs was the covenants. God's making a relationship with people through Abraham, Moses, and David. In every case, God created a relationship with them, promised to bless them beyond what they could understand. And now in Christ, Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, said, this is it. This is the final reach out of God. With my blood and my body, I'm establishing a new final covenant. This is the last covenant. 
That's why, do you know, people talk about these are the last days, you know? I mean, you know, we've got, we've got all these things going on plus another season of The Bachelor. I mean, things are falling apart. You know, this gotta be the last days. And, and, and you, know, you know, the last days started that night. That, that, the last days, scripturally, have been 2,000 years. Been the last days, why? Jesus is the final, he's the final reach out. This is it. This is the last reach out of God and the final definitive statement the final covenant has been offered. Theirs was the receiving of the law. God giving the Ten Commandments and all the law by revelation to Israel. That They didn't earn that gift. They were given that gift. And now we know, because we studied Romans 3.20, the purpose of the law wasn't just to make them a moral people, although it helped and it was essential in that way. The law was given to give an objective, measurable, I don't measure up. I, I mean, I can't keep them. Everything about that pointed to the one who would fulfill the law, and we get his benefit as if we did. Theirs was the temple worship. This was a visible order of service that included Elvis impersonators. <laughs> Seeing if you're in, listening. Hebrews 9.1 describes the order of service in the temple, how the people could approach God. And here's this. To go to church in that day, you had, you had to have a blood sacrifice. You had to have a purification and a cleansing before you could enter in, and you had to have a, had to have a priest. And now we're told in, Roman, or in Hebrews 8, 1 to 6, that Jesus was the fulfillment of all that. All that, all that was doing, all of the institutional sacrifice we're doing is they were saying the Messiah's coming, the Messiah's coming. They rolled back sin, and, and they told people, we can't be pure on our own. There must be blood. There must be someone who takes what sin brings, and that's death. Some, someone has to take that for us. And in Christ, we don't, we don't have any bulls and goats anymore, right? We don't, we don't have, and I hate to, with all due respect to your traditions, there's no need for a priest. There's one priest. There's one priest. Who is it? There's one mediator between man and God. First Timothy 2, the man Christ Jesus. There's one mediator. There's one high priest, Hebrews tells us, and his, his name is Jesus. He's the high priest. Theirs were the promises. This is referring to the numerous Old Testament prophecies and promises. The Messiah is coming. He will look like this. He will look like this. He will do this. We're going to get to that in a minute. Theirs were the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, David. These were all precursors of the Messiah. Jesus would even take on the name the son of David, the son of David, a, a, a descendant of David. Now look at this. Then there was the princess bride. Here's why I want to show that to you. How many of you have ever seen the princess bride? How many of you think I'm nuts for thinking it's one of the greatest comedies of all time? Yeah, some of you do. If you, I had so many people tell me, well, I'm going to watch it now. And I always go, you'll think it's stupid. I just want you to tell you right now, you'll think it's stupid. Because it is. It is so stupid. But it is utterly brilliant. Um, our family, it was sort of our fam one of our family's go-to. I think we watched it 287 times uh, when the kids were growing up. And, you know, inconceivable. It was, we, somebody do something inconceivable. And uh, I know a secret you did not know. I am not the right-handed, which is true for me. I'm left-handed. Uh, I literally have had people request at their wedding, back when I did weddings, uh, that, that I would do my wedge. <laughs> A dream within a dream. So that what true will follow you forever. 
But anyway, I digress, okay? Uh, so the, the movie has this central, these two, two central characters. One is Buttercup, played by Robin Wright, and she's the Princess Bride. And then there's Wesley that she calls Farm Boy. And there's this exchange that takes place when Grandpa, played by Peter Falk, Columbo, he's, he's reading this story in a book, Princess Bride book, to his, his little grandson, played by Fred Savage, and nothing gave Buttercup as much pleasure as ordering Wesley around. And Buttercup says, Farm Boy, polish my horse's saddle. I want to see my face shining in it by morning. And Wesley, Farm Boy, would respond... As you wish. As you wish, he said, was all he ever said to her. Buttercup, farm boy, fill these with water. As you wish. Farm boy, fetch me that pitcher. As you wish. And Grandpa says, that day she was amazed to discover that when he was saying, as you wish, what he meant was, I love you. And even more amazing was the day she realized she truly loved him back. And I love that scene because if you want to understand Israel, all, people think, oh, the Old Testament is all about wrath and the New Testament is about love. No, the Old Testament is about love too. It's all about love too. It's about Israel. Israel, God is there the whole time saying, I love you, Israel. And he would give them examples with like Hosea the prophet whose wife, Gomer, she cheated on him, and he said, Israel, you are like Gomer. You have cheated on me. You have committed adultery. You have broken my heart. And all this, all, all constantly, Israel, Israel, I love you. I love you. And he was there the whole time. And then one day, one day, he said, I'll come, and I'll give my final I love you. But Israel didn't realize that God was loving them and was among them, and he didn't, Israel didn't love him back. When the Messiah came. And, and that's the tragedy of the story. That's the reason that this is in Romans, I believe, is because what about Israel? Because in that case, Wesley didn't love Princess Bride back. What now? And this is where next week we're going to get into this more. But this is where we, here's the thing, is we, Israel, didn't didn't receive the Messiah, and so God went through Paul, especially to the Gentile world, and now we, when we get there in Romans 11, we have been grafted in. And when we begin to start, start talking about election next week, I want you to remember two things. I want you to remember drafted and grafted. That those of us who are here, there's a humility that the gospel ought to bring, just like it should have brought that to Israel, then there's a dignity. There's a humility and a dignity. A humility that we didn't earn this. Israel didn't earn being selected by God. You know what the word Hebrew means? Do you know what it means? It means homeless person. Vagabonds. No home. You know, Israel wasn't chosen because they're so impressive. Israel was chosen because God would say, he would show, I, I choose the weak things of the world so that my grace is evident. And, and he would choose Israel. He does the same thing to us. We have been drafted and grafted. If you're hearing this today, you have been drafted. And the choice is yours, I believe, whether you're grafted. You respond to that and you're grafted in to the root of Jesse, the tree of Judah. At weddings, a lot of times I would say, Remember, a wedding doesn't guarantee a marriage. A wedding presents the possibility of a marriage. And being here today, hearing the gospel proclaimed, that doesn't guarantee you're grafted in. 
it presents the possibility that you could if you want to be. Grafted in to the root of Jesse, to Jesus himself, the representative of Israel, the representative of God. And what's cool about this, it brings a humility, but it also brings a dignity, doesn't it? That, that you are a part of a chosen people. Not that you earned it, but, but you're, you're part of God's royal priesthood, is, is how the New Testament puts it. Let's say, that, let's say that you're a guy and you are dating this girl that is way over your head. It's way over your head. I mean, you outkicked your coverage big time. And, and she, she asks you and asks you and asks you to go out with her, but you think, oh, man, she's, that's, I'm way over my head there. No way. And then finally one day you give in and you have this amazing relationship. She wants to be with you. She sees you as the apple of her eye. I'm explaining Sherry's relationship with me is what I'm explaining <laughs> to you right now. And what would give you the security in that relationship is you didn't initiate that relationship. She did. What gives you security in your relationship with the Lord? You didn't initiate that relationship. He did. He asked you first. He drafted you first. He went across the dance floor at the junior high dance and he said, will you dance with me? And that's the power of our relationship. That love that he extended, nothing can separate us from that love. He made his decision, and he's all in. Now look at this last one. I want to spend the rest of our time on this last truth, and that is the person of God humbles us to where we want to say, as you wish. Look at that last phrase that the English translation of this does not carry the impact Austin was telling me this week, he just recently had a, uh, a Romans class in his studies with Western uh, Theological Seminary in Portland, and he said the professor in that class said, this is the most important verse in Romans. This is it. Why? Here it is. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, people forget Jesus was Jewish, who is God over all forever praised, Amen. The English translation does not carry the connectedness of that. That if you have God, you have Jesus. If you have Jesus, you have God. They are one and the same, forever praised, amen. And so when we talk about the person of God, we're talking about Jesus, the Son of God, fully human, fully divine. And this is what you cannot miss in Romans, is that he is the one who was, was on the draft table saying, I choose her. I choose him. It is Jesus, the son of God, who did that. Becoming a Jew, Jesus made God accessible. That's what he made God accessible. First to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. Barbara Boyd was a favorite Christian writer of many of us for many years. She died, I think, about five years ago. But she used to say this. Listen to this. She said, if the 96 million miles between the earth and the sun was the thickness of a piece of paper... Do you realize that the distance from the earth to the nearest star would be a stack of papers 70 feet high? Just the diameter of our little galaxy would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. And our little galaxy is just a speck in the universe. Our galaxy is just a speck in that universe, 310 miles high, a paper. And she said there are two questions that come from this. One, how are you a tiny speck 
on the tiny speck, on the tiny speck, universe, earth, you, how are you going to relate to the God who made all that? How are you going to relate to that God? Are you kidding me? He transcends all of that. How unsearchable his mind, Paul will say in a few chapters. Well, look at that verse. The Messiah, who is God over all forever praised. This is one of the reasons I put my faith in Jesus. Hebrews chapter one, verse one, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways, but in these last days, he has, these are the last days, remember, beginning then, the last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, the son, and through whom he also made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Physicists are yet to really understand what holds it all together. What holds it all together? And Paul said, uh, the writer of Hebrews says this, Paul says in Colossians 1, he is the one who's sustaining the whole thing with his pinky finger. His powerful word. God came near in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And, and look at this, look at this. He said this, John 14, 9, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Now, it was that statement, and one more we're gonna look at. It was that statement, and one more we're gonna look at, why C.S. Lewis, the most famous atheist in Britain in the first half of the 20th century, who became the most influential Christian, maybe other than Billy Graham, or maybe beyond Billy Graham in the 20th century, why he concluded that to call Jesus a good moral teacher is unacceptable. When you make a claim like that, you are either a liar, a lunatic, or your Lord. You either know you're lying, you're not telling the truth and you know it, you're conning people, or you think you're the Messiah. You have a Messiah complex and you're a lunatic because if those two aren't true, there's only one other option. You are who you said you are. Secondly, here's the second question Barbara Boyd said that that illustration poses. Jesus Christ, she said, holds the universe together with his pinky, with his powerful word. Do you ask somebody like that into your life to be your assistant? Hey, come alongside me and wallpaper my house. That's all I need. Then get out. When I, when I need you, I'll call you. She said, no. The only response to knowing that person is when he asks you to do something, you say what words? As you wish. That's why it's so critical, especially you students who are here, to settle the issue about what you think of the person of God revealed in the claims of Jesus Christ. Because either he was who he said he was, or he's a liar or a lunatic. There are no other options. Everything in your life hinges on that decision. Do you know the reason our culture is increasingly hostile to Christ, and it's only going to increase more and more, increasingly hostile to people who have put their faith in Christ? Why? It's because of that claim. It's, be, it's because of that. That's why. That's, that's the reason why. When I watch YouTube TV and there's a commercial and it says, don't want to watch the commercial? 
welcome your zen by watching this commercial. It doesn't say welcome your shalom, welcome your peace in Jesus. No, they're not going to say that. It's just comfortable to say zen, right? It's like everybody likes zen. It's safe. But it's not very comfortable. You ever heard somebody say, you know, Jesus' name is the name it's used to curse? You don't, you're watching a show, you don't see Jimmy Carter that hurt. They don't hear anybody say ever say that. It's Jesus Christ. Why? Why? It's not a mystery. It's because he said, if you've seen me, you've seen God. I am the final revelation, post-prophets, post-law, post-covenants. Everything was on the way to me. And you're either crazy, you're either a con man, or you're the Christ, if that's the case. Now, why is that critical to know that? It's because you live in what sociologists and theologians call a pluralistic society, which means that everything is equal in belief and value. There's an old um, East Indian parable that probably many of you have heard about the blind men who came upon an elephant. You ever heard this? And this is the example that secular people, especially in, in our uh, culture like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, like to use to express that all religions are the same, all belief systems are the same. Which, by the way, the law of non-contradiction means that two opposite and opposing truths cannot at the same time both be true. They can't be all true, okay? Because they actually oppose each other and say very different things. But in this example, the blind men all have access to only one part of the elephant, and they each explain this is what an elephant is like. So one grabs a hold of the trunk and says, elephants are long and flexible creatures. Another has hold of the leg and says, no, elephants are very short and thick and stiff creatures. Another blind man has hold of the side and says, no, you're not right at all. It's huge and flat. And they begin to argue. And each says to the other, no, your view of the elephant isn't right. And they argue, and they realize every one of them is right, and every one of them is wrong. They all have a part of the reality of the elephant, but nobody can see the whole picture. Therefore, none of them can say that they see the whole picture. They all see a part of the reality, not the whole of the reality. They are all partly right and partly wrong. And so the illustration concludes, all religions are the same. All religions see part of the spiritual truth. Nobody can see the whole thing. No one should insist that they have the entire truth. And that's how we ought to understand religions. Now, time out. Do you want to get on an airplane being flown by someone who's a relativist when it comes to aeronautical principles? Yes, oh, whatever any of everybody believes about aeronautics. I mean, it's good with me. It's good with me. Who needs thrust? Who needs that? Who needs that? We really don't need thrust. I mean, there is transcendent axiomatic truth in the world. Leslie Newbegin, the brilliant theologian, brilliant mind, author who was a missionary in India for many years who heard this story ad nauseum over and over. He wrote this in his book, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. One day I was listening to this elephant story and it hit me. The only way you could know that none of the blind men had a grip on the entire reality of the elephant was if you could see the whole elephant. And that means the only way you could possibly know that every religion only sees part of the truth is if you assume you see all the truth. It's the only way you could know that religions only see part of the truth. You assume to have the whole truth, which is the very thing you say nobody has. When you say that no one has a superior take on spiritual reality, that is a take on spiritual reality, which you say is superior to everyone else. 
And when you say no one should convert you to their take on spiritual reality, that is a view on spiritual reality that you want the listener to be converted to. What's the conundrum? Well, there was one who came. He, he, didn't say, he didn't say, follow me and I'll show you the way. He didn't say that. He didn't say, follow me and I'll show you the truth. He did not say that. He didn't say, follow me and I'll show you the life. I'll give you the path to life. He didn't say that. You know what he said? He came and he said, I am Southbrook. I am, <laughs> I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's why he got killed. This is why his followers got killed. Because his followers didn't say, oh, Jesus is an alternative in the, in the, in the temple of the Caesars, in the Caesar in the, uh, the Caesar cult, the cult of the Caesars. Jesus is just an addition to that. He's not, he's not usurping Caesar. No, you know what they said? When every Roman citizen had to go before the magistrate and proclaim every year Caesar's, Caesar is Lord, what did they say? Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And they would be baptized to identify with that, that, that Savior, that Caesar usurping Lord. And that's why they got killed. Not because in a pluralist society, which it was then too, they said he's an alternative, he's, he's an addition, he's equal. They said no, he is the way. He's the truth and he is the life. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. I said earlier that we have these amazing prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. There are 60 major prophecies in the Older Testament about the Messiah. And when you put those together, they form a fingerprint of what the Messiah will be. You'll be able to tell who is Messiah when you put all these prophecies together, which we now know through carbon-14 dating, that they, uh, the earliest those prophecies came were 700, or the latest, I should say, 700 years before Jesus of Nazareth ever walked the earth. So they weren't inserted later. Buried in a witch man's tomb, hung between two thieves, garments would be traded. I mean, just some born in, born in Bethlehem, raised in, in Egypt. I mean, it's just crazy specifics. The odds against anyone being that person are astronomical. For example, university mathematician Peter Stoner in his book Science Speaks conservatively calculated that the likelihood of any one person through history fulfilling 48 of those 60 prophecies would be one chance in 10 to the 157th power. To understand the magnitude of that number, this figure this, he says. An atom is so small, it takes a million atoms put side by side to form the width of a human hair. A million. And he said, hold that, because the odds of Jesus fulfilling, not 60, just 48 prophecies, would be the same as trying to find one specific predetermined atom among trillion, a trillion, 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 billion universes the size of our universe. That would be the odds. And yet, Jesus fulfilled that fingerprint. He put, boom, access granted, Messiah. And he looked at people like you and me and he said, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Do you think I'm just a good moral teacher? I have not left that alternative. I haven't left that alternative. Five seconds after we die, we're gonna find out if Jesus Christ was who he said he was. They can't all be true. They, they contradict each other. 
Five seconds after we die, we're going to find out if the Buddhist was right, which is essentially atheism. There is no God. Suffering doesn't exist. We're going to find out if the Islamist is true. We're going to find out. We're going to find out if the atheist is right. We're going to find out. And I, 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 my job, my calling, is to declare he is the way, the truth, and the life. He's it. He is the final call of God to say, come to me. Come to me. All you are weary and burdened, I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest. And when you understand that, you understand this universe is so big, it's held together by the, his pinky finger. When you understand this God is so big that now you can know, because if you've seen Jesus in his word, you've seen the Father, you know what God's like. When you know that, the only response that you can give is to say what? As you wish. You ask for my heart, soul, mind, and strength? As you wish. You got it. And that's what we hope for you. It's that simple. People say, boy, this is so narrow, Charlie. You're so narrow. That's why people hate Christianity, because you're so narrow. Really? What's more narrow? The country club that says, you gotta do these 10 things, you gotta have this much money, you gotta achieve these things, or you can't be a part of our club, or the club that says, receive the gift that somebody else paid for. Which is more narrow? Every other religion is about what you do. And you gotta do it. And you gotta hope that you did enough. There's only one that was done. He's done it. He's paid it. Paid in full. It is finished for you and for me and all of Israel pointed to that reality. Amen? Amen. If you come to communion right now, I have asked that you ask the Lord, give me your heart. Help my heart to break for what your heart breaks for because he will answer that prayer. I loved it when I was young and selfish and didn't give a rip about other people. If you ask for that prayer, he'll answer it. He'll give you a heart that breaks for your world to come to Christ and to know his grace. But I'd also ask that you say, Lord, what do you want me to do? Where can I obey you? Reveal to me any part of my life that is not pleasing to you. Give me repentance so that I say to you today, as you wish, as you wish. Let's pray. Father, we thank you we thank you for the passion we see in Jesus and in Paul. We thank you for your plan that from ages beyond, you, you had your designs on us. And we have been drafted. And now, Lord, we thank you most of all for the person of Christ, his body and blood given for us that causes us to have our hearts broken, that causes us to say just with the Roman centurion, just say the word, Jesus, and what you'll get from me is, as you wish. In Christ we pray, and everybody said, amen. We'll see you next week. <clears throat>